My name is Logan Walter, and I lead worship here from time to time. But tonight, surprise, I'm preaching. So uh, you guys can take a seat. We are talking about worship tonight. We're in a sermon series called Habits of the Heart. And last week, Dale, where's Dale? Is he in here somewhere? Yeah. Last week, Dale preached on fasting. And I'm so grateful that he did because fasting is the most neglected discipline in the Christian kingdom. It just is. And I think that's because so many of us feel insecure about our own practice of fasting. And so we don't feel like we can get on a stage and tell people what to do. But thankfully, the Word tells us what to do. And Dale preached the Word, and the Bible actually mentions fasting more times than baptism. Fasting is mentioned 77 times, baptism 75. And we name all sorts of churches and denominations and conventions after baptism, right? But when you're going home for Thanksgiving break in a few weeks, you will not pass by any first fasting church of Podunk, Texas. Like, you will not find that. Lots of FBCs, no FFCs. It is neglected. And so the charge, I just want to remind you guys, is to fast each Friday between now and Thanksgiving. Is that right, Dale? Each Friday between now and Thanksgiving. So a couple of more Fridays to jump on board. But tonight we're talking about worship, and we're going to be in Psalm 63. So if you want to get there, Psalm 63 verse 3 through 6. Worship has been a big part of my life. I began leading worship, if you can call it that, for my seventh grade Sunday school class at Walnut Ridge Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. Anybody from Mansfield? All right, all right. You would not have been cheering if you were in that Sunday school class. It was horrendous. Here's what happened. It was just me and a cassette player which even at the time was way out of date and not cool in any way. And I would put the cassette in the boombox, I would press play, and I would play along to Jesus is a rock and he rolls my blues away. Anybody remember that one? From the late 90s, okay? All the eighth grade girls made fun of me, and so I moved to Waco to escape the shame. And because my dad got a job at Baylor, and I began leading worship, for my youth group at FBC Woodway? Nobody. Nobody here from Woodway? All right, I was a Woodway duck. For some reason, we gave ourselves a uh, mascot. Yeah, I see you up there. We got one Woodway duck here. I don't know why we gave ourselves a mascot, but we did. And then I got to Baylor. I lived in Martin Hall. Because I enrolled late, could not get into Penland, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. And I hear that they have refurbished Martin Hall, and they've removed the asbestos, and it's a wonderful place to live now. And so that is great for you. I suffered for Christ, was sick for four years as a result of my time in Martin Hall. And I was the type of Baylor student who wanted to be married young, okay? I wanted a ring by spring. I wanted one. And I was going to get my imaginary girlfriend a ring by Christmas so that she could get me a ring by spring. 
I wanted my $45 fake silver James Avery ring. That did not work out. And I got a degree in philosophy. So I graduated with no wife and no job, no earning potential. But I did spend formative years here at Baylor, God shepherding my heart as a worshiper. And I'm indebted to Baylor. I'm indebted to this ministry. I began worshiping at this ministry at a young age. And by the way, this ties into where we're headed tonight. I did end up getting that ring. And here's how God, yes, thank you, thank you. Here's how God did that. I moved to Dallas. I moved to Dallas, no dice. And so I moved to Austin. And in Austin, I found my, what's the singular, die? I found my die, okay, no pun intended. But we have a picture of her, her name is Maddie. She is beautiful, she is kind, she is patient. She has a great prescription, it makes her eyes look bigger, it's so cute. And she's also an Enneagram 9, which means my life is amazing, okay? For those of you who speak Enneagram, a 9 is a peacemaker, which is quite helpful in marriage. I, on the other hand, am a 3, which means I'm, what's a 3? Achiever. I am recklessly ambitious. As evidenced, if you can put that picture back up of me and Maddie, as evidenced by the fact that I have hair in this picture, okay? I have hair in this picture, and now I shave my head, and the hairline is going back because shortly after this picture was taken, my wife gave birth three times in 30 months, three separate births, and I can't help but feel responsible as an Enneagram 3. And <laughs> you don't have to clap for that. Honestly, if you're taking notes, and if you write down three births in 30 months, just go ahead and cross through that, or some, maybe some question marks. This is our latest edition. Her name is Sylvia, and she is beautiful. We have a picture of her, our youngest. She's beautiful. She has a great smile. She's a good sleeper. She will never do anything wrong, and she has no allergies. She is a beautiful child. Now, I also have two boys. And my two boys, they are arrows in the quiver. Okay, that's what the Bible says. And they are a joy, just in a different way, just in a different way than my daughter is a joy. And as I was thinking about worship as a discipline, worship being a habit of the heart, I thought about how my boys start their day each day. And so I'm going to show this to you. We have a video straight from my Instagram highlights. This is how Simon and Clark start the day. When the nightlight turns blue, Simon crawls out of his bed. He goes up to Clark and says something like, Awake, O sleeper. And then once he said whatever he says, he just tumps Clark over, boom! And Clark tumbles out of bed, no choice, no choice in the matter. And then Simon comes out eager to start the day. Clark, still in a daze, not quite as eager, but he is off and running, nonetheless, ready to eat some waffles. Now, sometimes it's worse than this. 
Sometimes Clark is dead asleep, dead in his sin. And then Simon says, Lazarus, come out. And he tips Clark out of bed. Simon, eager to start the day. Clark, not quite as eager. Still up and running nonetheless. Now here's the tie-in. Here's where we're headed. Many of us think of worship, passionate worship, our whole hearts and minds and strength engaged for the Lord as something we do when circumstantially we're feeling like Simon. Eager. We walk in, the setting is good, the song is good, we're at Passion Conference, it's a new song, we don't care, we're at Passion, let's go. But to worship God as a discipline means that we worship even when the world would look at us and our circumstances and they would say, you should just stay asleep. And that's the situation that David is in, in Psalm 63. I taught about David to our preschoolers at my church recently. And I had a little Woody doll from Toy Story, and I had an enormous Hulk doll. And I taught about David and Goliath. And I knew I was losing the three-year-olds when I said, this is Woody, but it's also David, but it's also Jesus. And this is Hulk, but it's also Goliath, but it's also your sin that Jesus defeated right over their heads, right? That is not the state of life that David is in when he's writing this psalm. There aren't people singing about how he slays his tens of thousands. This is David running for his life from his own son, Absalom. I joke about how my boys push each other out of bed and how they're allergic to everything. I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but they are allergic to everything, even avocados. David has been pushed off of his own throne by his own son, Absalom. And Absalom is pursuing his dad to take his life. And in the midst of that circumstance, David writes these worship lyrics to God. Psalm 63, verses 3 through 6. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. This is what it looks like for worship to be a habit of the heart. No matter the circumstance, to worship God. And we see here that David begins by looking to God and seeing All of this is happening around me, but still, your steadfast love is better than life. And so if you're taking notes, 
Point number one is this. Worship starts with God. Worship starts with God. It does not start with you mustering up loving feelings for God. 1 John 4, 4. We love because God first loved us. It starts by looking to him. I'm a worship pastor at a church in Frisco, Texas called Providence Church. And the lead pastor of Providence is a guy named Afshin Ziafat, who was on stage here at the 10-year anniversary praying over Dale because Afshin was the first teaching pastor at Vertical. Afshin was raised in a Muslim home. God saved him out of an Islamic background. And he tells people all the time, the main difference between Christianity and the major world religions is that the major world religions start with imperatives. They start with the things that we do for God. If you do a list of five things, you can earn God's love. That is not the gospel. That's not Christianity. In Christianity, it starts with God's love for us. Romans 5.8, he loves us so much that he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, dead in our sin, asleep in the pack and play, Jesus died for you. We didn't do anything. We can't turn worship into one more work to earn God's favor. We'll never get there. We start by looking and seeing that God's steadfast love is better than life. And then we respond to that love. Let's keep reading. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. My lips will praise you. And so point number two is worship is vocal. This is where things start to get practical. It's vocal. The most reiterated command in the Bible is to sing. 50 explicit commands in the Psalms. Psalm 47.6 says, sing praises to our God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. Sing, 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 sing. God wants us to open our mouths and respond to him in song. But this is my favorite passage in the Bible about singing. It's Zephaniah 3.17. Listen to this. This is such good news. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We're not the only ones singing. God is singing over us. So each night when I put my kids to bed, my two feisty boys and my perfect daughter, when I put them to bed, I sing scripture over them. Unless they insist that my wife do that, which is about half the time. They insist on mama singing to them. And the song that my son Simon requests the most is Psalm 119.11, put to melody. 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He doesn't fully understand what that means. In fact, he has started to request that I say, I have hidden your word in my star. I think he wants it to be a twinkle, twinkle, little star mashup. But the point is we sing scripture over our kids. Now, my parents, my dad and mom who are here tonight, they sang over me. But when I sing over my kids, I am not ultimately imitating my earthly parents. I am imitating a heavenly father who sings over me and who sings over my parents and who sings over you, a daughter of the king, a son of the king. God cares far more about your heart than your voice. But what the psalmist is saying is if God has your heart, then how could you not open your mouth and respond? He sings over us, and he wants us to sing back to him. Worship is vocal. Let's keep reading. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I will lift up my hands. And so we see point number three, worship is expressive. And you may be thinking, not for me, it's not. And if that's you, I just want to say, I was right there with you during my time at Baylor. And then I got to the Austin Stone Community Church in 2013. And when I got to the Austin Stone, I was given a nickname. And that nickname was Frozen Chosen, okay? I don't know if you've ever been labeled that. Chosen to be a child of God, frozen with my hands to my guitar. Not expressive, not interested in expressing myself in any way to the Lord. And do you know what God used to melt my frozen chosen heart? He used two things. Primarily, I could not deny the expression that I saw in the Bible and then secondarily, I realized I was lifting my hands in worship. It just wasn't happening at church. I'll give you an example. I married into an Oklahoma State family. Okay, there are good families all across the Big 12. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but there are good families all across the Big 12. I married into one. And in my first year of marriage, my wife, she was a good sport, she came with me to a Baylor game. It was 2014, Baylor versus Kansas State for the Big 12 title. Just a sampling of what's to come, by the way. 9-0, and can I get a sick em? Come on. That's right. So we're there, front row, and she knows, okay, I'm wearing a bright yellow hoodie that says Baylor across the front. She knows her parents are watching. Her whole family is Oklahoma State. So she's kind of hoping this doesn't come to light in some sort of embarrassing way. And so here's what happened. In the fourth quarter, we are all standing in anticipation, wondering, is Baylor going to win the Big 12 title? Spoiler alert, we did. Spoiler alert, we're going to again this year, 2019. Come on. But this is 2014 we're talking about. Bryce Petty drops back to pass, throws the pass to Antoine Goodley, Antoine Goodley catches it in stride, heads to the end zone, nail in the coffin. We're Big 12 champs. 
But here's the beauty of that moment. Right there on national television, Sports Center, ESPN, you see right behind Antoine Goodley in the front row, clear as day, my wife go like this. Elated that a team she cares nothing about is about to score a touchdown to win the conference title, a conference in which her team exists. She doesn't care. She's raising her hands, and I was right there with her along with the whole stadium. Why were we doing that? Why were we lifting our hands, clapping, celebrating? It's because the whole stadium was hoping something would happen. And then that hope was fulfilled. And this was our natural response. This was our response. And by the way, lifting of hands is not the only expression in the Bible. Take a look at this. One, bowing, Psalm 95.6. Number two, clapping, Psalm 47.1. Three, standing in awe, Psalm 33.8. Four, dancing. Uh-oh. This was banned on this campus until 1996, in case you weren't aware of our legalistic roots. But praise God, we've repented, and now you can dance in this very place tonight before the Lord, should you so choose. Number five, being still, Psalm 46.10. So if your dancing becomes a distraction, consider point number five, being still. Now, by giving us all of these expressions in the Bible, does God intend to turn us into worship clones, that we would all just come together, we walk into the sanctuary, the worship leader is leading Jesus paid it all, and we're all elbowing each other like, when he gets to the bridge, you know, when he gets to the bridge, and then, oh, praise the one, and then we all raise our hands at the exact same time. Is that what God is wanting? No, we see a diversity of expression in the Bible, a diversity of expression. And so in a room like this, in a city like this, across denominations, we should have a diversity of expression to the Lord. But here's something to consider as we look at these scriptures. When you look at yourself as a worshiper, if you're being honest, you're reflecting on how you worship the Lord, would you say, I have never bowed in prayer before the Lord. I have never clapped joyfully to celebrate something he's done. I have never lifted a hand in celebration or surrender. If that's the case, would you consider asking God to grow you in this area? I'm still asking him to grow me. Worship is expressive. Let's keep reading. I will bless you as long as I live in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Think about what David is going through as he is writing this. Being pursued by his own son. 
but worshiping God, seeing his steadfast love, and responding with joy is something that was so ingrained in David's heart. It was a habit of his heart that he couldn't help but say, God, regardless of my circumstance, I will praise you with joyful lips. And so worship is joyful. It's joyful. Now, that does not mean we're always going to feel happy. It doesn't mean that we are always going to be feeling like Simon, just bouncing out of the crib, ready to tug somebody with us to church, prouncing into the kitchen, ready for some waffles, ready to scream at somebody. We're not always going to be feeling that way. But even when you are suffering, think about this. How many of us in seasons of suffering and in a room like this, there are hundreds of stories of suffering represented? And how many times have we tried to get through that season of suffering, that season of anxiety, that season of depression, that season of addiction? How many times have we tried to get through that without worshiping? God. It's so tempting to enter a season of suffering and say, not right now, God. And how does that work out for us? How does it work out for us to go through suffering without worshiping him? God has designed us to rejoice in him no matter what we are going through. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord, what? Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And that's not just a father saying, do this because I said so. God tells us to rejoice in him, and then he gives us the reason. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so even in seasons of anxiety, God says, rejoice in me. Let your requests be made known to me. Be thankful towards me. Why? And then the peace of Christ, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart in your mind, in Christ Jesus. God knows even in our seasons of suffering, we need to be reminded that Jesus, through his death on the cross, removed our imperfections as worshipers. And we're no longer bound to the consequences of death. We're no longer forever bound to sickness and depression and anxiety. He has ultimately removed that. And he has given us his perfect life. He has given us his perfect worship of the Father. And so now when we're singing and God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our imperfections as worshipers. He sees the perfect life of his son Jesus in us. That is a bedrock of joy that we are standing on regardless of our circumstance. Amen? Let's keep reading. It 
says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. And so here David is out in the wilderness, suffering, wrestling through all sorts of insecurities as a leader, as a parent, as a child of God. And he says, God, I remember worshiping you upon my bed in the watches of the night. Nobody looking. I didn't care. I worshiped you privately. David worshiped God in his bed in the watches of the night. But here's what's beautiful about Psalm 63. If we go back to verse 2, we see this. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And so David says, I have worshipped you in my bed in the middle of the night, nobody watching, privately, just me and you, God. And I have beheld your power and glory in the sanctuary around other believers, people looking at me. I'm unashamed. And so we see from this, worship is both private and corporate. And so here's the call to action for tonight. It's very simple. You can do it right now in your seat as you're sitting there. And we're about to sing, by the way. We're going to have an extended time of singing to respond to Psalm 63. Here's the call to action. Would you ask yourself two questions? One, how are you doing as a private worshiper? As a private worshiper. We know that Jesus often withdrew to deserted places to be with the Father. We know that he withdrew to be with the Father. How are you doing in withdrawing to be with the Father? And two, how are you doing as a corporate worshiper? Are you gathering with the local body of believers? I know as a Baylor student how tempting it is to treat chapel and to treat vertical and to treat all these other things that are thrown at you as my corporate worship experience. But you will hear Dale and Chambers and JC and the rest of the leadership team, they will tell you this is meant to be a supplement to the local church. So how are you doing? Where might God be asking you to grow as a worshiper tonight? Now I want to end by saying this. How you're doing as a private worshiper and how you're doing as a corporate worshiper has no bearing on God's approval of you. It has no bearing on how the Father looks at you. If you have been struggling to worship him privately, you haven't found a church home yet, you know you should have by now, but you haven't, The Father looks at you and he delights in you because he looks at you and he sees Jesus. And so if you have never experienced that, if you're here tonight and most of what I have been saying seems foreign and you thought Christianity was a list of rules you had to follow, And worship 
was a list of things that would get you favor with God. I have good news tonight. Jesus loves you while you were still a sinner. Loved you enough to die for you. And he takes all of our imperfections away and he gives his perfect life to us through his death on the cross. Our worth is in him. He gives us his worth and we proclaim his worth back to him in worship. That's what it looks like to worship. And so we're going to end tonight by singing to him. We're going to end tonight by proclaiming how worthy he is. Nothing we can do, nothing we can muster up, just looking to him and saying, God, your steadfast love is better than life. You are worthy. I want to end by reading Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. This is a picture of worship in heaven. And then we're going to sing a song that has not yet been sung at vertical. So you may know it. You may not know it. Either way, we're going to go for it. That's part of what it looks like to foster worship as a habit of the heart. Psalm 33 says, sing a new song with loud shouts. So we're about to get rowdy tonight. Is that okay? Let's all stand up as we read God's word together. Revelation 5, 9 through 12. This is what worship looks like in heaven. This is what it looks like to look at Jesus and respond to him. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray together.